When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Our genes are our unique calling card and DNA analysis has been used to solve crimes and resolve paternity disputes for decades. Now new genetic technology promises to revolutionise medicine. Sequencing of DNA will just be a test. It'll just be part of our routine practice. And I think that's where we're at now. I think it's going to become completely ubiquitous. Plus, we meet the man who invented genetic fingerprinting, discuss Angelina Jolie's breasts and savour a cheesy gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for June 2013 with me, Dr. Katani, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Back in April, I was at the Royal Society in London for the Genetic Society Spring Meeting, Genomics for Health and Society. One of the most captivating talks of the day was from Professor Sir Alec Jeffries, the inventor of DNA fingerprinting in the 80s. It was initially used to resolve immigration disputes, proving whether people were really family members or not, and then paternity disputes. And then it rapidly transformed crime detection. I asked him where he thought DNA fingerprinting technology is heading in the future. Well, I think in terms of the, the technology we have at the moment, it's, it's, we're sort of trapped in a, a technology trap using technology which is now around about 20 years old and I don't see that evolving a great deal certainly in crime detection uh, but what I do see is, is is broadening out into if you think about DNA identification and family relationships the your initial thoughts are about you know catching the criminal and working out whether so-and-so was really the father of the child What's now emerging is a much broader field of DNA and genealogy and ancestry. And that's already become a pretty mature field, but it's got a long way to go yet. So the question is, to what extent can we discover interesting things about your ancestry by, by, by scouring through all your DNA sequences and, and comparing them with, with, other, with other individuals? So just as a hypothetical, let's suppose that we could take every single person in the United Kingdom and sequence their entire genome, you could take that information and go a very long way towards establishing an incredibly detailed family tree of all the peoples of Britain, a detailed genealogy. And just imagine what you could do with that. All these long-lost third cousins you knew nothing about, uh, all sorts of interesting uh, connections with physical characteristics you might have, you know, facial features and all the rest. My mum would love this. <laughs> yeah, so I think so. So I think the potential is there. Um, it does raise very thorny issues of genetic privacy and so on. So I mean, as soon as you start looking at the genome, yes, you'll come up with a lot of DNA variation, which is informative in terms of ancestry, but not particularly important in terms of you as an individual. But amongst that is going to be all sorts of potentially quite nasty surprises, uh, mutations within your DNA that may well have health consequences. 
So tread carefully. Interesting field, but um, there's a downside there potentially. And thinking more uh, about crime and forensics, now that we can do whole genome analysis and we start to know what sort of genes encode for variations in characteristics, do you think maybe in the future police will be able to reconstruct what a criminal looked like from just a sample of their DNA? Yeah, well, this is something that people, certainly the police and scientists associated with with, with, uh, forensic science... Uh, they've been interested actually for well over two decades in this notion of the DNA identikit. So can you go into DNA? What sort of physical characteristics can you predict from that? And the list at the moment is fairly limited. So we can do the sex of an individual. Red hair is a good test for that. Eye colour can be done. Other things like uh, facial features, which is perhaps the most direct sign of heritability that we all think about. You know, little Jimmy's got his mum's eyes and his dad's nose. You know, what? The, the, those are statements that do make sense. We can see heritability of facial features. Can you actually detect the DNA determinants that control uh, the way we look? Barely off the starting block. And it may well be that it turns out to be so genetically complex you can never use it in a simple predictive forensic context. But I would make the argument that the the reason for doing that is, is not for police investigation. It's just that most fascinating area of inquiry, and that is you know, what, what makes us all unique. Why am I me? Yeah, why are you you? Why, why do you look the way you do? And, and, and uh, how does DNA influence that, that uniqueness as an individual? So um, I would see the future of forensic DNA very much as forensic DNA as part of a much bigger set of DNA inquiries, uh, which revolve around the individual, uh, who I am as an individual, how the DNA contribute to that. And now that we have more and more DNA sequences and and much more genomic information about more and more people, Mm. uh, do you have any concerns about how this information might be used, for example, by the police or by the state or by other individuals? Well, the, I mean, a full genome sequence will, by definition, include all the information on all the um, genetic variants that are potentially damaging to you as an individual. Um, so, so there are issues of genetic privacy there and the right for the, you know, either the National Health Service or government or whatever to have information, highly personal private information on, on for instance, disease liabilities. But remember, the information on your genome... Uh, has implications for other people. So your gene isn't your genome. Your genome is half of your mum and half of your dad's genome. If you've got children, each of those will have inherited half of it. So the genome is a shared thing. And anything that you find out about your genome has immediate implications for close family relatives. Um, And again, that's all too often forgotten in this slightly sort of the notion of personalised medicine, that this is... You know, genomic information helping you as an individual um, optimise your treatment or whatever, which is fine. But remember, when you're at the level of the genome, it's not just you. There's all these, all these relatives as well. And when you first came up with the idea of, of genetic fingerprinting, you know, back in the 80s, did you have any idea how that field would grow and just how the field of genetics and genomics would explode? No, I mean, no way. I, I mean, I saw, when we came, first came up with the notion of DNA identification, I saw this as a nine-day wonder, uh, potentially of utility in forensic investigations, but a technology of last resort. So if you were to tell me that today there's well over 20 million convicted criminals 
now have their DNA uh, profile database on national DNA databases, that the total number of people worldwide that through criminal investigations, through paternity, through immigration case work and so on, have been, their lives have been directly affected by DNA tests. I mean, that number, I don't know, nobody's counting. 30, 40 million? I've absolutely no idea. Possibly more. I mean, I would never have believed that. So it really has, I mean, the way it's spread and spread so rapidly is quite extraordinary. And remember, certainly in the early days, the driver for that spread was the community itself. It wasn't government departments, it wasn't the police, it wasn't the lawyers insisting on this. It was the families themselves trapped in disputes where they suddenly saw DNA as their, their salvation. And then it's amazing to think that maybe the driver of the next genetic revolution could be people like my mum doing their family history. Oh, yeah, and that, that is quite likely. I think the, I'm fairly sure that the, I mean, genealogy, people doing family history, is going to be... It's already a bit of a driver. I think it's going to become a much larger driver in the future. Um, so, I mean, I haven't had my genome done. I'll be a bit leery about having it done uh, so I can discover all the genetic nastinesses that are sort of lurking in my chromosomes. But I would love to have it done for genealogy. And, uh, I mean, one specific question, uh, which has sort of been attempted already, but I don't think the answer is definitive, is uh, I am a Welsh Jeffries, so is Judge Jeffries, Baron George Jeffries, the hanging judge. So maybe I'm a descendant of his. Let's use DNA to find out. That was Alec Jeffries from the University of Leicester. Coming up later, we'll be finding out whether Mr Spock's tricorder could be closer than we might think. But first, it's time to mull over one of this month's top genetics news stories with science writer Dr Matt Kaiser. Hello. Hello. Now, the big story this month has been Angelina Jolie, genetics finally hitting the headlines. She announced in a a very moving article in the New York Times that she'd had a double mastectomy after learning that she had an apparently 87% chance of developing breast cancer. And this is because she carries a faulty BRCA1 gene. And uh, she does seem to have some family history of this. I mean, it's, it's quite a big decision to make, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as we know, her mother died of ovarian cancer and since then, we've learned that her mother's sister, so her aunt also, and unfortunately died of cancer. So it was obviously a very, very difficult decision for her and it, in having that test and being put at high risk of developing breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And the figure of 87%, it seems remarkably precise, but I'm guessing there's some kind of computer programme that they put all sorts of things into. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the BRCA1 mutation can uh, increase the lifetime risk for, for women for between 60 and 90%, which is quite a broad range. That's and for breast cancer, isn't for, it? For breast cancer, yes, and um, sort of you know, 40 to 60% for ovarian cancer. The 87% figure com- comes from you know, scientists working out lots of other different risk factors, so other genetic factors, the particular type of mutation that a person might have age, environment, um, lifestyle factors. So all this stuff gets thrown into a computer program and out, out comes a number of 87%. And it sounds very precise, but um, it's probably not quite as um, quite as accurate as it, as it first seems. I mean, but it is basically very high. I think the average risk for a woman in the general population is about a 12% chance in your lifetime. So that's if there are 100 women, 12 of them would get breast cancer at some point whereas this is we're talking about even up to 80 to 90 percent risk so it is very significant but there's a a wider context here as well because currently that the BRCA1 and BRCA2 these are breast and ovarian cancer genes there's a, a big patent case going on in the US right now and we should be hopefully quite soon expecting an answer on this what is this case about Matt? Yes it's a really interesting one so there's a 
uh, a company called Myriad Genetics who've developed a, a diagnostic test and this tests for the mutations in, in BRCA1 and the BRCA2 genes, um, which we know, in, which we talked about increasing the risk of breast and ovarian cancer. Now, they own a, a patent that was um, granted um, in the US um, for, for their test. And what's interesting is the patent also covers the whole gene as well. So rather than just the, the test they can sell, they actually own the patent on the gene, which can actually prevent people from working on the gene and developing their own tests. So they have a bit of monopoly on this um, testing for these uh, mutations. Now, to gain a patent, you have to show that there has been some invention. And you could argue, and perhaps quite sensibly, that a gene is not an invention. It's, you know, it's come about by an evolutionary process. It it's happens in nature. Well, and also everyone's genes are slightly different, Exactly, too. yes. So how can you patent a gene? Um, they claim that, you know, when they take it out of um, someone's cells and they break it up and put it into their genetic test, that creates a new entity and that's their invention and that's where their, their patent lies. But it, it's, it's, it's a bit of a grey area. And it... It's a very interesting issue because it is basically who owns your genes and the right to test for them because the, the BRCA1 and 2 tests are very, very expensive. They're several thousand dollars, I understand. Whereas now the cost of genetic sequencing and genetic testing should be coming right down. I think it's a, it could be a landmark case. Absolutely. I mean, because they own this monopoly, they can charge vast sums of money and that could prevent uh, some women um, having access to the test for something that could be done for maybe a couple of hundred dollars. And we'd also wouldn't want researchers who are looking at alternative ways, cheaper ways, um, perhaps there's new discoveries to be made on the BRCA1 mutation. So it's, it's really important that um, that doesn't happen. And finally, I just wanted to wrap up with a completely different story, which is about mutant mosquitoes and uh, the headline being Mutant Mosquitoes Don't Smell. What's this story about? OK, so this um, is research that was carried out by Leslie Vossel, who's a neurobiologist at Rockefeller University in New York. Her lab a few years ago was studying Drosophila, and they, these are little fruit flies. So these are little fruit flies, which have been the uh, standard lab tool for geneticists for, for a good century. Um, and they're re- really easy to, um, to study genetically and to modify and to look at how genetic modifications change their behaviour. And they were able to genetically modify some fruit flies that, um, that lost their sense of smell. And they did this by, by mutating a single gene that makes a protein that forms um, a complex with all their, the smell receptors in the, in the Drosophila's antennae, so they're their version of the nose. And without this co-receptor, the smell receptors don't form a functioning protein. Now, they've been able to translate this research into mosquitoes, into the mosquito Aedes aegypti, which is the mosquito that carries dengue and yellow fever. They showed that they were able to genetically modify this protein in the mosquito as well. And the interesting thing then was that the mutant mosquitoes weren't able to discriminate between humans and guinea pigs, which normally mosquitoes would be able to do. Bad news for the guinea pigs. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so as to sort of feel the guinea pig's pain, the hu- there was also a human um, experiment oh. in which Professor Vossel um, volunteered herself to um, take part in this, which was to offer the mutant mosquitoes a, hu- a, a normal human arm and one that's been slathered in DEET, which is the 
um, components of many insect repellents. And what was interesting was the mutant mosquitoes um, weren't repelled by DEET, which is what normal mosquitoes would be. It was interesting as well because they, they couldn't tell the difference between an arm that smelt of DEET and one that didn't. But when they got onto the arm, they really didn't like it and they went away. So maybe DEET's having another effect that's not just smell too. Yeah, so rather than carrying on and feeding, they did. They were, they were eventually repulsed um, when they were actually in direct contact, so perhaps through, through the taste pathway. This is building up a body of knowledge and it could really help with um, sort of a new generation of insect repellents. And it's worth pointing out that this, this protein, this protein called ORCO, which is the co-receptor, um, is found in all insects as well, so it could be tr- transferred to, to other um, disease-carrying insects. And I just think it's a great example of how playing about with fruit flies um, and studying their genes and perhaps that's seen as um, something that doesn't have much of an endpoint can be translated and now we're really seeing the fruits of, of, that, of, of that fundamental knowledge. Thanks, Matt. That's Dr Matt Kaiser. And now here's a roundup of the rest of this month's genetics news. An international team led by researchers at the universities of Manchester and Newcastle have tracked down a gene fault linked to a type of heart defect in newborn babies known as hole in the heart. Writing in the journal Nature Genetics, the researchers scanned through 500,000 genetic variations in more than 2,000 patients born with congenital heart defects and compared them with the same variations in more than 5,000 healthy people. They discovered that a particular variation near a gene called MSX1 was found in around 10% of people born with a hole in the heart, a condition known as an atrial septal defect, which is one of the most common forms of congenital heart disease. It's not exactly clear whether MSX1 itself is responsible, but the team are now trying to figure that out. US researchers have discovered a number of new gene faults linked to spontaneous, non-inherited cases of a particular type of motor neurone disease known as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, that's ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, an incurable disease where the nerves responsible for movement and breathing stop working. Although some of the gene faults responsible for hereditary ALS are known about, more than 9 in 10 cases happen in people with no family history and there's no way of telling who might be at risk. Writing in the journal Nature Neuroscience, the scientists compared DNA from 47 patients with spontaneous or sporadic ALS with DNA from their unaffected parents. They were looking for new gene faults that had arisen within the patient that weren't present in either parent they discovered 25 new gene faults that had come up in the patients, including five faults in genes involved in DNA packing within the cell to form a structure called chromatin, providing new insights into what might be causing the disease. And if you want to find out more about these stories, the references are on our website. That's nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out how skin colour is controlled by our genes, and our gene of the month has a cheesy flavour. But now it's time to hear more from the Genetic Society Spring Meeting. Perhaps the most futuristic talk came from Professor Sir John Byrne at the University of Newcastle, who talked about the latest developments in bringing gene technology directly to patients' bedsides, something that could revolutionise medical care in the not-too-distant future. It turns out that a handheld gene scanning device, something not too dissimilar from Mr Spock's fictional tricorder, may not be too far away. I asked him to explain more about the exciting developments in technology and what the future of genetic analysis might look like. We're seeing, I think, a diversity of delivery. 
been a lot of emphasis on whole genome sequencing and you know, looking at all your genes in one go, and that's clearly part of the story, and the machinery for that's getting ever more powerful. But also point-of-care testing. There are a lot of situations, infection diagnosis, pharmacogenetics in, in, in people being prescribed drugs, where you might just want to do a test here and now, and a very specific test targeted to a particular purpose. So, so just a couple of genes, not the whole yeah, lot. Yeah, exactly. And it takes away a lot of these issues about protecting your data and, and, and so on. And you could reliably give that to a much more... Uh, diverse population of clinicians like pharmacists and GPs because they're not asking whole genome questions, they're just asking the question they need an answer to for this particular circumstance. And I'm currently in a debate, and I'm obviously biased because the company I'm part of has now got a very powerful point-of-care technology which is using nanowires. On that basis, you end up testing a yes-no sort of question, is this or is this not present? And then from there, we're moving on to sequence short runs of DNA and we think we can actually take that to the next level and actually sequence whole stretches of DNA by using nanochannels lined with nanowires. So it's actually very exciting because it means we actually can really now see the prospect uh, in our gadget, the first of which arrives next month, of doing sort of 20 tests for £20 in 20 minutes, which changes the whole game in terms of point-of-care testing. So just to get an idea of this kind of technology, what, what sort of scale are we talking about? That The size of a, of a microwave, the size of a phone? What's, what's the future going to look like for these kind of point-of-care genetic tests? Well, there are lots of machines around, and they vary in size and complexity. The one that we're working with, Quantum DX, we, we um, have our first machine that look like a big old-fashioned computer or a, you know, a microwave is a good comparison. But that's actually because we're still playing with the constituents. By the end of this year, we'll have something that will be a, a, with a screen about the size of an iPad that's easily portable. Uh, sort of a laptop kind of yeah, size. Yeah, sort of a laptop size, but a bit deeper. Uh, but in fact, our, our intention is to, to end up with what you might call a sort of overinflated iPhone, uh, which would actually be able to take a cassette plugged in the top. And the cassette carries all of the necessary DNA extraction, amplification and testing chemicals. So if you, you, the same little machine will give you a test for TB or a test for drug sensitivity or, or, or a test a tumour sample, depending on what the question is you need answered. And that's actually within sight in the next couple of years. Because that sounds like something out of science fiction. You, yeah. you put a bit of someone's blood in this little device and it tells you, oh, they need this drug, not that drug. They've got this infection, not that infection. Yeah. Does it kind of stagger you when you look back over your career that we've got to this point so fast? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, yes, in fact, we've talked to the people in America who are trying to make the tricorder, which was, of course, what Captain Kirk used, or, or Mr Spock used. And in fact, Captain Kirk made his captain's log on a, on a, on a pad, so the name iPad actually was derived from that, uh, that era. And yes, I think the tricorder is, is getting closer. I mean, the idea that you can spit in the end of a little machine and, and for next to nothing in no time know the DNA result was unimaginable. I mean, when I started in genetics, we couldn't do any DNA tests. I actually pre predate the DNA era, which is quite scary. So, you know, I mean, I think uh, we've got to keep changing our perception. DNA was a sort of hypothetical concept when I started. Then it became something that very few people could do. Then it became dramatically more accessible, but still big technology driven by people who are very clever and not part of the common sort of routine clinical practice. What we're now moving into is that period where it, it sort of disappears in a way. You know, we, our, our, our iPhones and our smartphones have, have got enormously powerful computers 
but we don't think of them as enormously powerful computers, it's just a phone. And I think sequencing and DNA will just be, just be a test. It'll just be part of our routine practice. And I think that's where we're at now. I think it's going to become completely ubiquitous, uh, certainly in terms of these simple tests. Uh, and potentially, of course, if we get the 100,000 Genome Project to work, then our medical record will carry a whole host of other useful information in a few years' time that will help us get more personalised care. And where do you see are the really potential big wins that could come quite quickly from getting more genome sequencing technology available in the clinic in the UK? I think that we shouldn't be uh, underestimate the logistical challenge of understanding complex traits because there's so much we don't know about the genome in terms of non-coding RNAs, epigenetics and so on, you know, the, uh, genes being switched on and off by, by their environmental factors. So I want to concentrate on areas, for example, with hereditary breast cancer, hereditary bowel cancer, familial hypercholesterolemia, where we've got those three conditions in England or in the UK, there are about a third of a million people carrying genes, high penetrance genes, and in each case we have a very effective intervention that could reduce or avoid them developing cancer. The one I'm obviously most interested in is colon cancer because we've shown that two aspirins a day will half your cancer risk if you've got hereditary cancer. And that's a very cheap treatment. But there are 60,000 people out there in Britain based on the best evidence, and we only know 6,000 of them. So we've got to find those people, and that's where I think there's going to be a major uh, development in the near future. But once we've proved it works with them, where the ethics is clear, the you know, research is, is, is encouraged by the patient group, we can roll it out into a bigger population uh, and five years from now I think whole genome sequencing is a sort of fairly routine thing that if you turn up with a medical problem is entirely uh, you know, within vision. That was John Byrne from the University of Newcastle and the company Quantum DX. Now it's time to look at your burning genetics questions with the help of naked scientist Martha Enriquez. Listener Catherine Wells wanted to know about the genetics underlying differences in human skin colour. Why is it that children often have an intermediate appearance between their two parents? Mircea Iliscu from Cambridge University explained. Skin pigmentation is given by melanin. So melanin is a pigment which is in the skin cells. And melanin is produced in these granules in the cells which are melanosomes. And this is quite a complex process. Uh, probably more than 100 proteins and genes are involved in producing this pigment. And so the pigmentation eventually depends on the type of melanin, on the amount of uh, these granules of melanin, and on the uh, distribution of the granules in the skin. All this affects how dark or light the skin would be. These days we measure, for example, with a melanin index. So we have a reflectometer, a machine which just measures skin reflectance, so how light or dark the skin is. And it gives us a melanin index, a value. For example, the range can be, let's say, from 25 to 100, where 25 would be a European skin and 100 would be someone in the equatorial Africa. So because we have a complex process and because there's a high range of variations, it's highly unlikely that one gene only, one change in one gene would cause all these differences. It happens with the eye color from blue to brown. And changes in several genes can alter the pigmentation values. So just to give you an example, the gene which probably has the most effect is one SLC24A5, which has an effect of about 10, 15 melanin index units. That's the most one gene can impact pigmentation. And that is usually in an additive manner. So if you have two copies of each gene, one change would maybe give a, create a difference of five melanin index units, and the second copy, if it changes, gives you another, another five or six. So it's not really dominant like it happens with the blue and brown eyes, where 
if you have only then one copy of the brown gene, let's call it, you'll get instantly brown eyes. And so this process, there's a combinatorial effect of all these genes, each with their, their own effect, and depending on what the parents have, then the kid will have an intermediate range and could have darker or lighter skin. And that's how basically the range of pigmentation, that pigmentation in the world is created. So a large number of genes contribute to human skin colour in a number of different ways, which results in a subtle and complicated process influencing the child's skin colour. Thanks to Mircea Iliscu for answering that question from Catherine Wells. Thanks, Martha. And if you've got any questions about genes, DNA and genetics you'd like us to answer, just email them to genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Genetics or post on our Facebook page. And finally, our gene of the month is Swiss cheese. As regular listeners might have come to expect, Swiss cheese is the name of the gene mutation in fruit flies, first described in 1979. The flies start out life just fine as larvae, but then their nerve cells start to break down in the pupa and adult stages. Adult flies with a faulty Swiss cheese gene have a characteristic pattern of holes in their brains, like their namesake food. Researchers now know that the protein encoded by Swiss cheese is involved in controlling how supporting cells, called glial cells, wrap around nerve cells to protect them. In mutant flies, the glial cells are overactive, wrapping around the nerve cells too much and causing them to die. There's a similar protein in yeast and worms, and also in mammals, where it's known as neuropathy target esterase, or NTE. Getting rid of this protein in the brain of mice leads to a similar holy appearance, as in the flies, while mice lacking the gene altogether die in the womb as the placenta doesn't form properly. In humans, faults in NTE are responsible for a type of hereditary motor neurone disease, and it's also the main target of organophosphate pesticide chemicals. But the actual function of Swiss cheese, or NTE, still needs to be completely figured out, so researchers are working to um, fill in the holes. That's all for now. I'll be back again next month and we'll be talking about sex. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is also available on iTunes or online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.